Welcome to the Harmony of Interest Book Talks, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Ellen Bravo and Larry Miller about their new book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle, published by Hardball Press. This multi-generational novel about class struggles filled with stories of workers overcoming obstacles to achieve labor solidarity in the workplace. Ellen is a writer, organizer, and lifelong activist. She's a former director of 9to5, the group that inspired the famous movie, and co-founder of Family Values at Work, a network of state coalitions working for family-friendly policies. She's also an award-winning writer of nonfiction books, including Taking on the Big Boys of Why Feminism is Good for Families, Business, and the Nation. And her first novel, Again and Again, tackled the campus sexual violence epidemic, male privilege, and beltway politics. And Larry is her co-conspirator and uh, spent over 45 years with Ellen fighting for equality and justice and uh, just finished a stint on the school board, which I'm interested in talking to you a little bit more. But thank you so much for your time. Our pleasure. This book does reflect a lot of your experience over the many different years in these many different short stories that build up through over 50 years of different snapshots of fictional accounts that probably represented different experiences in your in your lifetime. And could you begin by talking about your journey into social justice and labor issues? I, I can go first if you want. So, you know, I grew up Jewish. The Holocaust wasn't something I learned about. It was something I always knew. I grew up with it. And the idea that there were people who were silent in the face of that kind of atrocity was pretty abhorrent. And so the idea that you should speak up and uh, stand for justice was something um, kind of endemic in my life. And I think, it, I, I, you know, I became an activist of civil rights and anti-war and was involved in Greek resistance and and found the women's movement. And I realized that it made sense of a lot of things that had happened in my life. And I realized that all these things were connected, that this was a systemic problem, and that the only way to solve it was to have the people that are most impacted lead the struggle. And obviously that meant for me, for the women's movement, that we had to have movements and organizations that spoke to and, and were vehicles for working class women and had to be multiracial. And that's what led me to nine to five. And for myself, I grew up in a working class family that uh, was very, very progressive on issues of race. My father was in, during World War II, was in San Antonio, Texas, and refused to leave the section of the bus that was designated for African-Americans and got in big trouble with his uh, superiors in the military as an individual. And so my parents were, you know, just believed in righteousness and, you know, it was right or wrong in this world. And so that's the kind of kind of upbringing I had. And then when I left high school, I, I was wanted to consciously get involved in activism. And so I ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, actually going through Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I can talk about that because I lived in Greenwood where the massacre happened in 1921 and was very much connected to what it, members of what had been Congress of Racial Equality. And most of them were workers in unions or organizing unions in, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I, my 
political consciousness just grew at every at, at every step. And then I got a job at Grady Hospital, the largest, at one time it was the largest hospital in the South, where the um, first story takes place, which is pretty much what happened, the slowdown. And so at, at any step of, of what I was doing, I just gained more consciousness about the importance of of the working class and of the, the importance of unity with the people of color, gender, all, all of these issues. Great. Yeah. And this book, Standing Up, Tales of Struggle, and the very first part of the first story is a worker who is in a hospital laundry kind of unit that is cleaning some of the, the linens and there is no worker safety. There's a lot, there's no PPE for a lot of the workers and things like that. And there was also a major racial component as well. Could you talk a little bit about how race is used to, to split the classes in well, that context? The, we, we tried to give the, give the uh, example of what actually happened though. When Nick was, was at the, uh, in the laundry, the white boss tried to sit, talk to him about, and tried to separate him from the black workers. And that was, that was not going to happen. And. You can see where if you have a, a workplace that is divided and racially divided, it hurts everybody. It doesn't just hurt the workers of color. It, it hurts the white workers also. Racism is not good for anyone. And if we're really going to come together in this country, we, we, this issue, this issue of race has to be central and has to be tackled centrally. And so we try to address it in, in different ways in the book. There were actual ways that we confronted racism and, and, and issues of race, both within changing ourselves and being self-critical, but also in trying to unite as many people as possible. Thank you. And Ellen, why did you want to write this book? You know, what really sparked the book was that Larry had written these essays about people that meant a lot to him and jobs he had and organizing experience he had in the South when he was a young white kid from Wisconsin, you know, trying to find his place in helping change the world. And there wasn't really a genre for those. And so they thought, well, maybe I could turn them into fiction, but I don't really know how to do that. And I said, well, I can help. And I have these other pieces of things that I've written that I'd love to incorporate. So we had a great time, you know, kind of figuring out how to put this all together and tell a story that was, as my wonderful friend Pramila Jayapal wrote a blurb for the book, that I just love. And she says, she calls it, she said, it's a love story, a tale of parenting, of friendship, of solidarity, and a wonderful depiction of people stepping into power. So that's what we really wanted to show those moments when people understand that oppression is not inevitable and that you can do something about it if you act together with others. I, I mean, I, I just love that there's a dynamic between Sophie and Nick, which, you know, is a reflection of two loving people together and raising children and going through, you know, 50 years of struggle. It's really, really a, a wonderful tale. And each short story has its own point lesson in it, but it, it just builds into this wonderful crescendo. And, and to the end as well, there is a little bit of a talk on not only ageism, but women in ageism. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that last story about what, what the characters faced? It was very funny. Larry would say things and I'd say, I'm taking that line, it's going right in the book. Because the, how much we internalize 
the bias that we live with. We hail unions and the importance of unions in the book. We also recognize that racism and sexism and other forms of bias exist in those structures as well. And so age bias is one of those things that just people feel completely free to say, don't, aren't aware of the impact. And so it was really my imagining the training I'd love to see happen to help raise people's awareness of the vitality and, you know, because people older doesn't mean they've stopped having dreams and things that are important to them. And yeah, got to say it in that, in that chapter. So people should know that the uh, title of the chapter is War, The Roar of the Elders. So no one said that. It's very vast. People hear that roar. Yeah, and I, I just loved even the, the touching aspects where you're, you're out walking the dog and it's, it's cold out and it's, it's just a very, it, you're, I really enjoy the way you write and the way this came together. And so talking a little bit about the technical aspect for people who have maybe their own stories that they want to tell, I know you've been writing a lot and it's, it's not an easy task to put together a book, but could you talk what was your process writing this book and co-authoring it? Well, Ellen's the man of the two. You know, I've written essays, uh, the essays that she talked about based on, on real events. And, you know, and I'm also an editor of Rethinking Schools, an education journal. And by the way, very good. But so I've written some of that sort of stuff, essays, but to actually write fiction, we would go through the process of I would write things out the way it to go and, and the content. And then Ellen would look at it and start changing it into actual literature, you know, what I consider literature. And then we'd go back and forth on that. And it was, it was a very agreeable relationship because I recognized her, her strengths in writing and she takes my critiques, you know, you know, very well and, and consciously. So it, it's, it, it's been a good process, a very good process. I'll give you an example. We did a little retreat. We went to Cowboy Joe's and Cowboy David's Ranch in near Viroqua, Wisconsin for three days. And this was during COVID. And, you know, so we packed our food, stayed in this lovely cabin, took hikes, enjoyed the beauty. And then Larry would tell me the story and I would drill him and ask him questions. And what did Elsie look like? And tell me what his voice sounded like. And what was the sound of that place? And what did it smell like? And so on. And then he would tell me that and I'd incorporate it. And then he'd read it. And then he'd say, here, fix that, change that. And then we'd write more. We'd go back and forth that way. And it was so great to me. For example, when we did the chapter on the first date, I'm paying for my meal. And I said to Larry, what do you remember of that first date? He remembered everything about that day. He remembered what he wore and what he ate and, and doing a little reconnaissance on the club that we were going to go to so that he wouldn't look silly about way, knowing where to park. And it was so touched by that, that he remembered all those details. And obviously that all got incorporated in the, in the chapter. Yeah. It's, it's just such a wonderful thing because you being together for so long as well and recounting that. And so that adds just a whole nother part of the magic of this story and this, this collection of 23 short stories that are fictional, but are very real as well. So what would you like people to take away from this book? 
Well, I think the, again, to quote a friend who wrote a blurb, Rinku Sen, she said, one of the things I want people to see is this is what it means to be an organizer, to be an activist. You fall in love, you have kids, you have relationships, you have friends, you have sex, you have food, and you work together with these people to make change every way that you can. That it's not some separate kind of being that does this. It's us, it's his life. And that it can be joyous. And so we really want people to think about the power they have and not give more power uh, to those in charge and realize that we can take that power back, collective ways of, of thinking through, making analysis, making strategy, making a plan. In addition to that, I, I wanted people to be described and de depicted in the amazing ways that I, I saw them, people that were just incredibly supportive and were just living their lives, but they were these wonderful, wonderful workers that, you know what I mean, that had great ideas. No one really paid attention to their thinking, to their thoughts, but we wanted to give uh, credence to, you know, to that. It, it's, it's so important, that voice is so important that I've heard, you know, that taught me. Those, these, were, these were the people that taught me in my lifetime and became the heroes in my life. And I, we want to reverse the, you know, the, the way, the, the way people look at the workers. Yeah. There's a wonderful author named Mbolo Mbue who wrote a book called How Beautiful We Were about this African village that's being completely exploited and polluted by an oil, a U.S. oil company. And the phrase she uses about the people who live in that village are the deliberately unheard. I have a particular pet peeve about people who talk about the voiceless, no one's voice. They just get blocked out. And we wanted to lift up those voices and put the spotlight on them as so, uh, unfortunately, uh, so little happens in literature and, and have people celebrate those lives. That's part of what we want to. Yeah, and I, I did find that in some of the notes about this question of like, People aren't voiceless. They're just not being heard. And also oftentimes the labor is just seen as a struggle, but the solidarity with other workers does create tremendous joy and the ability to overcome challenges. And it, it is about power. And so when you come together and you're able to overpower an oppressive force, there's great joy and, and solidarity and feelings of, of hope and victory and love. I come through that, that, that I really thought you captured well in many of these short stories. So looking ahead today and where we are in the state of labor, and I've been an unorganized worker for most of my life, and I've gotten very interested from social justice into the fact that labor is the counterbalance to oligarchical power. And it always has been organized labor will be what improves the global awareness and in and, and bringing about rights for everyone everywhere. And I was getting very hopeful in the last several years about the movements of, of labor and organizing. We're still seeing tremendous amounts of work stoppages and changes like that. But I'm also really concerned that COVID in a, in a way has set back a lot of labor organizing by 
continuing to fragment workplace, creating different tiers of workers where some workers have to be behind a mask all day. But then if I'm going out to eat, I can take it right off after I sit at, sit at my table. Things like the greatest transfer of wealth that has ever occurred in the history of the world has just happened over the last two years. And then algorithmic management and some of these other things going on. But I guess where do you find kind of hope and opportunity in today's labor organizing? Well, one of the things that we have seen, at, in the, just what you're describing, the development of two-tier labor force, we tried to write about that in the call center at the airline and the, the stand-up and the union makes us strong, those chapters. The fight against that, the fight for equity and understanding that it will disproportionately affect workers of color to be in tier B or whatever it gets called, but all workers are in danger when that happens really understanding what Larry was saying about we all have a stake in fighting racism. I see that as a development that more people are talking about that and doing it. We were excited about the Fight for 15 organizing and Justice for Janitors, groups that are trying to get employers, multiple employers to make a, a contract rather than just shop by shop. I think that's a really good, exciting trend. The Amazon strike, you know, we've worked with people, our Walmart and now United for Respect, who've been trying to do organizing at Walmart and Amazon for a long time and not giving up and understanding the need to build communities of workers who work to think together about a strategy. It, the companies are as vicious and union busting as they've ever been spending gazillions of dollars, not just on union busting, but on going to the moon and saying they, don't, they can't afford to pay their workers decently or give them family leave and um, paid sick time or treating them differently if they're part-time and then demanding that most people stay part-time. So the, the recognition of that and fighting that and organizing against that, that's all really exciting. And we've also been really excited by the teachers unionizing fights. And Larry, as a teacher, a retired teacher, say a little more about. Well, a couple of things. One, I mean, it was amazing to me that it was the teachers in West Virginia where the attacks on teachers unions and other unions, public sector workers, is as strong as it is here in Wisconsin. When we fought, I'm wearing the t-shirt of the resistance against Act 10 under Scott, under Scott Walker, which is still the law. Mm. But they stood up. And then the teachers in Oklahoma you know, I lived in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is not in any way a progressive state or historically been considered a union state. For them to stand up and take the lead, I just, I, I thought was phenomenal. It gives, it gives uh, me great hope. And another example of what we see is, is here in Milwaukee. There's an organization, a statewide organization for immigrant workers. It's called, it's called Voces de la Frontera. And they've had as many as uh, 80,000 people marched the streets for immigrant rights. They have a worker center and they work very closely with the unions. They help try to organize a union at Palermo's Pizza. And they've just, they're very connected to bringing organized labor together with immigrant workers. We see this kind of work going on on a daily basis. And we, it's, we're, it's very hopeful. There's that what you were talking about, Evan, with the fragmentation and all of the stuff that's going on with with the, you know, groups like organizations like Amazon trying to take advantage of the, of the COVID situation and the, the food processing plants taking advantage of 
of the situation will come back in our, in my opinion, to bite them that as, as we go through this, we are going to, I am hoping that we're going to see an even greater resistance and uh, organizing effect among, among you, um, for unions and among unions. And one more thing I'd add. So obviously union density has been completely smashed and we're in such a weaker position than we were in 30, 40 years ago, but private sector unions have really grown and that's been very important for workers of color as an opening to get a foothold in a decent job. And it's why the fight against privatization, our friend Donald Cohn has written a great book called The Privatization of Everything, is so important and the importance of the keeping the public sector. What we saw in Act 10 in that uprising in Wisconsin, here are these workers, these state workers who have fought like heck and given up wages to get decent health care. And then Scott Walker says, they're the haves. Hey, workers of Wisconsin in the private sector, you don't have a health care plan like that. That's bad. We should go after these people. Instead of, here's a model for you, which is what we all were saying, organize and be like, have a union like these folks, and you'll, you'll get the same kind of plan. So fighting that effort to divide people and, and the effort to demonize the public sector that's really important, just as, you know, the fight for, to keep public schools public. This has been a massive battle here in Wisconsin and obviously elsewhere. I do see that even media organizing is going to lead to a greater awareness and greater content creation of people talking about unions, understanding unions, as a lot of newsrooms get unionized as well. And I'm, I'm hopeful on that. And there's, there's always a question of Wall Street dipping into both parties' uh, coffers. And, uh, you know, on, on one side, you have a New Deal pro-union party, but then it's constantly pulling punches as the new Democrats came in and replaced the New Deal Democrats. And as it's grown in its big tent and acknowledged all of the social inequities and in we still have to figure out how to, like, get Wall Street and all of these financial predators out of the equation that's privatizing everything from private equity to schools and everything else. No, I was just going to say it's why the, you know, efforts like Elizabeth Warren's to regulate and, you know, and name that there has to be a cap on profits and maximum wages, just like there's minimum wages. We just have to start being honest about, I mean, being, um, Frank about what what that change looks like, and that we're talking about systemic, profound change. And I just want to say one other thing that gives us hope is the rise within the union movement of organizing among and leadership among women and people of color. The fact that the that Liz Schuler is the head of the AFL, America Henry is the head of SEIU, that we have a black woman at the head of the NEA that we have much more concentration in, among low-wage workers as organizing opportunities. Those are all good things. And that unions are trying more and more to have frank conversations about what unity among members means and why that has to include dealing with things like racism and sexism and homophobia. So we're, we're hopeful in that sense as well. In looking at the huge number of problems facing us, in this country, in, in the labor movement and in working class communities, really what we're trying to do is just 
give examples of where people have stood up and, and realized I have the power, but this is not going to be given to me. It's not going to be requested to me. I have to, I have to seize the time and, and stand up to power and having seen it, you know, resistance happen around the country in, in so many different ways. It's just, you know, fills me with joy. And, and I think we're going to continue to see. And we hope the book helps people see that being an activist and being part of this fight for change doesn't mean that you don't make time for yourself, for your kids, for your love, that you don't laugh. In fact, these are the opportunities that create joyous community. And we, we applaud all the people that are part of it and are inspired by them and hope to see it continue to grow. And thank you so much for writing this, this wonderful book that's very inspiring as well. And I think everyone needs to buy a copy of Standing Up, Tales of Struggle. And you can get it from an independent publisher, Hardball Press, or your independent bookstore. And I am also very inspired with the work that you've done and uh, what I've learned just from reading this book. So I think everyone should, should buy it. And thanks again for your time. And this concludes Empathy Media Lab's Harmony of Interest Book Talks. And always remember, labor solidarity forever.